0: And I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. This morning we're going to take a little step back away from our regular series. We'll return to it next week. But we're doing that because today is a special moment in the life of our church. Today we have the joy and the privilege of ordaining two men to office. One to the office of elder and another to the office of deacon. We remember, of course, that the officers of our church, both elders and deacon, are really the gift of Christ to us. We have to see them as such, and that's because they are one of the primary means by which Christ exercises his love and his care and his oversight over the church. Now, you might remember four years ago when we went through the book of First Timothy, that what we see Paul doing in this book is he's laying out a pattern for the church. This is the book that explains how the church is to be structured. What is the proper order for life in the church? What is the proper way of behaving? All this is being laid out in Timothy, so it shouldn't surprise us that here in this chapter, it includes the qualifications of those who are called to lead and to serve in the church. And that's what we have here in 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for elders and deacons. Hear now the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory." Well, thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it's preached to us this morning. And as I say, even that it should be a blessing to us, you might ask, well, this passage seems like it's great for those who are officers in the church or those who uh, aspire to the office of elder and deacon, but of what use is this passage to me? How is this passage relevant to Christians every day? As we look at this passage, I want you to see three things that will help us see how it's relevant. The first thing is that elders and deacons are Jesus' idea for the church. The second is that elders and deacons incarnate the ministry of Jesus. And lastly, elders and deacons serve as models of Jesus for us to emulate. So those are the three things we're going to see. Elders and deacons are not our idea. They are Jesus' idea for the church. Elders and deacons incarnate. They live out and exemplify the ministry of Jesus. And finally, the elders and deacons serve as models to us so that we might emulate them even as they emulate Christ. So those are the three things that we're going to see as we look at the passage. Let's take up the first point. Elders and deacons are Jesus' idea for the church, for his church. You see, as we look at the passage, we see the two offices laid out. We have the qualifications for the elder in verses 1 through 7, qualifications for the deacon in verses 8 through 7. 13. Now, before we go further, you might say, wait a minute, elder, deacon, where's the pastor? How come it doesn't mention the qualifications for a pastor? In our culture, we tend to see pastors as someone who is separate from the rest of the church. But in reality, as we learn here in this text and elsewhere, pastors and elders all are in the same office. Pastors are not separate from elders. We can see that again and again in Scripture. So, for example, in this passage, it actually does not ever mention the word elder. It talks about, in verses 1 through 7, the overseer. The overseer. That's the word that elsewhere is translated bishop. It's the idea that the elder exercises oversight and shepherds and pastors the congregation. That's made very explicit elsewhere in Scripture. In Acts chapter 20, for example, in verse 17, Paul calls the elders of Ephesus for a meeting. And he actually says, call the elders to me. And as he's speaking to them in verse 28 of Acts 20, he refers to those elders as overseers. Those who shepherd and oversee the flock. He does the same thing in Titus chapter 1. There in verses 5 through 6, he twice refers to the elders. In the next verse, verse 7, he refers to the same as overseers. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 5 the first verse, he refers to them as elders. and the second verse, he refers to them as overseers. So what we're dealing with here is really one office. But there is some distinction to be made within that one office. And Paul gives us some clarity in 1 Timothy 5.17 on that issue. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul makes clear that all the elders are called to rule. All the elders are called to to exercise oversight over the people, to shepherd and to pastor them. Some are particularly called to preaching and teaching. And so pastors are elders. In fact, the word pastor really applies to all our elders. But we do tend to make a distinction and refer to the ruling elders and to those who, like myself, who stand in a pulpit uh, week after week as teaching elders. But we're really one office, the one office of elder. You might say it has two classes ruling and teaching. So when we look at this passage, what we're really seeing are two offices that Christ is laying out for his church, the office of elder and the office of deacon. And you might say, well, that's great. All right. And you heard that still, you told us you were going to tell us why it mattered and how it's relevant. Well, the first reason why it matters is because how we order the church does matter. It affects everything that we do in the church. And that's because elders and deacons, these two offices are not human inventions. They are, in fact, ordained by Christ. Jesus, of course, is head over his church. That means he is the Lord over his church. He is the king. And he exercises his divine prerogatives in how he structures his church. It's his. And he has the right of rule to to structure it as he wishes. It is his divine prerogative to ordain the offices that will rule and will serve in our church. So it's vitally important that we recognize that these offices have been ordained by God. They are in the word. It's not something that we can reject. It's not something that we can add on to and put on all sorts of different layers of hierarchical offices or that we can reduce as in some independent churches where there's only a pastor and no officers or perhaps a pastor and only one office, but not the two. We have to accept Christ if we call him Lord— If we say that we submit to him as our king, we must also accept that he has structured the governance of his church. Not just who he calls into his church, but the governance of his church. Jeff Thomas uh, is a Reformed Baptist minister in Wales, and he speaks to this very thing. He says, to reject the New Testament pattern of the two offices of elders and deacons would be either to go on accepting that world of archbishops, diocesan bishops, archdeacons, deans, prebendaries, canons, minor canons, chancellors, curates, vicars, generals, parish councils, commissaries, surrogates, proctors, clerks, and holy orders, and the like, with its antiquarian image of Trollope and Barchester Towers, or to fall into that other world of worship leaders, song leaders, youth leaders, group leaders, team ministers, counselors, and the like, with its image of doing things. In contrast to all of that, Christ's church has a marvelous simplicity of just two offices. And they are described in this chapter, the elder or overseer and the deacon. So the first reason this is relevant to us is because Jesus, as the king of our church, the Lord of our church, has ordained them and has said, this is the way I want my church to be governed and served. That's the first reason. But the second reason is that in Christ doing this very thing, he has appointed these offices for our good. They serve for our good. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. So in other words, what we're learning is, why is this important? Because first of all, officers are not our idea. They're not a human invention. They're Jesus' idea. And he's put them there for our good. As we just read in Ephesians 4, they are meant to grow us up in Christ. So they are there for our good. Let's see how they are meant to grow us up in Christ. That's actually our second point. And that is that elders and deacons incarnate the ministry of Jesus. As you heard me say when we were reading uh, Mark chapter 2 at the beginning of, um, of the service, Jesus' ministry was a ministry of word and deed. In the ministry of the word, he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom, a kingdom that would overturn this present order. We in our sin and our rebellion have ruined God's perfect creation. We have become evil. We have become mean to another. We have uh, destroyed everything about our society. It's our fault in our rebellion against God. Sin is a consequence of that. Rebe- well, sin is the rebellion against God, and everything we see now is a consequence of that sin. The good news of the gospel when Jesus came, and he was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, was just that very thing. There's a new world order coming. And it's not the one that the globalists are putting together or any Illuminati or anything of that nature. No, the new world order, the new age, which is not a Shirley MacLaine kind of thing. That may be a reference for only the older folks. But it is the coming of this kingdom, and it has come in Christ. And this kingdom will overturn and is overturning this old way way of doing things. So that's Jesus' ministry of the word. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom that it actually came in him, but it was always accompanied by the ministry of deed. As he healed and as he comforted people, and as we saw in the reading from Mark chapter 2, the purpose for his doing ministries of deed by exercising, uh, by, by healing, by comforting people, and so on, these sometimes miraculous acts, was meant to illustrate for us what that kingdom of which he was preaching was going to be like. The amazing thing is that once we understand that this is Jesus' ministry, ministry of word and deed, is that when we look to the officers, we see that they incarnate these two things. They're represented to us by the officers of the church. The ministry of the word continues to be carried out by the elders as they rule and as they teach. The ministry of deed is something that's expressed by our deacons through service and through mercy. Or to look at it another way, The ministry of the word is carried out by the elders to care for our spiritual needs while the ministry of the word that's being expressed by the deacons is there to care for our physical needs. But what an amazing thing that God in his care, Jesus in his care and love for the church would put the two offices that continue his own ministry to the church, ministry of word and deed. It's an amazing thing. So these men who are called to office incarnate, they live out the ministry of Jesus in our midst. And that's absolutely huge. And that's why Paul lays out these qualifications, because he wants us to know what kind of men God would want to represent his son to us. So I won't go into all the details, but we look briefly. Let's look at the qualifications for the elder in the first seven verses. We see several characteristics, several qualifications. One, he is to be a shepherd. We see that in verse 1 where he is called the overseers. We said, again, the one who exercises oversight, who shepherds and cares for his people. He's also meant to be godly. We see that in verses 2 through 3. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Let's skip over able to teach for now. We'll come back to that. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So he is to be godly. He's also, be, uh, as we saw there in the end of verse 2, able to teach. doesn't necessarily mean that he has to be a great pulpiteer, but the elder, whether he be a teaching elder or a ruling elder, has to be able to convey the truth that's found in Scripture. Verses 4 through 5 show us that he has to be a capable head of the home, since he must manage his own household well. Verse 6 tells us that he has to be experienced in the faith. He must not be a recent convert. Verse 7 tells us he has to have a good reputation. He must be well thought of by outsiders. So these are the qualifications laid out for an elder as he represents Christ in the ministry of word. But now we look at verses 8 through 12, and we see the deacons also have their own qualifications, very similar to elders. In fact, Paul begins by saying deacons likewise must be, and they also likewise must be godly. Right? Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 9 tells us that they are to be orthodox in their belief. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So unlike elders, they don't necessarily have to be able to teach, although there are some deacons who are quite capable of teaching, but it's not necessary for their office. However, they must be convinced and convicted of the truth of God's word. So they must be orthodox. Verse 10 tells us they have to be experienced, just like elders. Let them also be tested first. So they have to be experienced. Also, in verse 11, we get a unique qualification that you don't find for elder. It says that they have to have a qualified wife. Now, that might strike us as a little bit strange. It says that for deacons, but not for elders. But if you step back, it really kind of makes sense. The office that elders exercise is one of rule. It's an office of headship, and it's something that the men do, but their wives cannot share. They cannot participate in ruling. We don't have elderettes. However, deacons serve, and as they minister to the needs of people, you can see where a wife could be a great help. Can you imagine when a man has to come to a widow and help her with something? It's kind of maybe doesn't look all that good if he goes by himself, but if his wife comes along with him, if his wife enters into that ministry, She can be a great help. So Paul lays out that one of the qualifications for the deacon is that he has to have a qualified wife. And finally, we see that just like the elder, he has to be the the capable head of his home. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So these are the qualifications that we see laid out for both elder and for deacon. The thing I want you to pick up on this is that there is no single man that can live up perfectly to these qualifications all the time, except for one. And that man is Jesus. Everyone else who fills the office of elder and deacon, we can look and, you know, when we, when we uh, examine these men and the session examines all of them, we, uh, a number of different fronts, we begin with looking at these qualifications and we want to see if those things are, are present. But we know that we all fall short and none of us lives up to it perfectly. But the thing is that every one of these qualifications is found preeminently in Jesus. Think about it. Was there anyone more godly, more self-controlled, more respectable, more dignified, and not double-tongued than Jesus? We talk of him, for example, being the shepherd. Elders are to be shepherds. Well, Jesus is the chief shepherd. Fourteen times in the Old Testament and New Testament, Christ is referred to as the shepherd. He famously says in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. In 1 Peter chapter 5, which we already referenced earlier when Peter is talking to the elders, he calls the elders to shepherd the flock of God. But he says in verse 4 that they are to do so under the authority of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So when we talk about being the shepherd, for an elder, we recognize that Jesus is that chief shepherd. And that means that if we are to serve as his under shepherds, those of us who have the office of, of elder, it means that we are to focus on pastoral ministry. We're to carry out pastoral oversight over the people. Elders are not primarily board members. They're not there uh, to do administration or finances. Their role is one of visitation, of counseling, of the study of theology and scripture. And Paul tells us in verse 1 of our passage that it's hard work. The calling of an elder is hard work. The, the word that is translated task, a noble task, that word task literally means hardly laborious work. But while it is hard work, it is also noble work. Noble work because the elder reflects Jesus himself. The elder represents Christ to us in the ministry of word because Jesus is that chief shepherd. But you see, deacons, aren't elders, not the only ones, deacons also reflect Christ to us. If Jesus is our chief shepherd, he is also our chief deacon. The word deacon, what we translate deacon, is actually just the word for servant. Just the word for servant, diakonos. It does not mean servant as in a household servant, a butler or a maid, or much less a slave. There is a separate word in the New Testament for that, doulos. The word diakonos means a minister, someone who cares for the needs of others. And in that regard, Jesus is our chief servant, our chief deacon. Thirteen times in Isaiah 42 through 53 alone, Jesus is referred to as the suffering servant. The one who served the needs of his people, who saw us broken in our sin, and suffered on our behalf. The deacon who is called to this role is modeled after Jesus' suffering. The one who gave of himself sacrificially in Isaiah 42 through 53, you've read those sections, show that the way that he preeminently did this is that he took upon himself the penalty that you and I owe God because of our sin and our rebellion. We owe God an immeasurable debt that we cannot pay, but Jesus took it upon himself himself. So that when we put our trust in him, that sin is wiped away. Jesus is that suffering servant. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 8.2 refers to him as a minister in the holy place, the one who meets our needs. Paul in Romans 15.8 says, I tell you that Christ Jesus became a servant to the church, a diakonos to the church. He is the chief servant. And that means that deacons then are called to continue Jesus' ministry of mercy. That means that they are to heal and comfort, not supernaturally, but through diaconal ministries of mercy. And that becomes so clear when we look at Acts chapter 6, when deacons were first introduced to the church. And we see them being called to this vital ministry. Acts 6 verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Daily distribution of food and care. And the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned the full numbers of the, the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So there are the apostles saying, We're called to the ministry of the Word. And they have this division of labor where now we're going to call these men equally filled with the Spirit, equally wise, but in a different context. They will do the ministry of deed. They will take care of the physical needs while we take care of the spiritual needs. And together, the beauty of this thing when we put it all together is that these two offices at work represent Jesus Christ himself to us, to his people, as they care for us spiritually and physically. The elders representing Jesus as a shepherd, the deacons representing Jesus as a servant. What a beautiful picture. Jesus has put that in place in his own church for our good so that ministry can continue going forward. And that means that you men who are about to be ordained to office today and those of you who already are officers, we need to recognize that we are being called to minister to Jesus people in his name. This reminds us of the very high calling and position of your office. It's not something that we can take lightly. That means that we cannot invent the duties for which we're responsible, but we have to do what Jesus himself did within those areas. John Calvin says, It is no light matter to be a representative of the Son of God in discharging an office of such magnitude, the object of which is to erect and extend the kingdom of God, to procure the salvation of souls which the Lord himself has purchased with his own blood, and to govern the church, which is God's inheritance. Well, does that sound overwhelming? It should. And those of you who have served in the office of elder or deacon know that it goes beyond your ability. And so we ask who is sufficient for this? Who is competent for this? And of course the answer is none of us in and of ourselves. And yet Jesus calls us, but if he calls us, he equips us. And second Corinthians three, four says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. And even though he's talking about himself and the ministry of the word, it applies to both ministry of word and deed. We are not sufficient in of ourselves. If you try to enter into this office in your own strength, you will utterly fail. But when you find your competence in Christ and you rest upon him, just an extension of what we do every day as believers, then he uses us miraculously to be able to minister to people. And that actually leads to our last point, which is as we look at these qualifications, we have to look at the context in which Paul gives them. That's why I read all the way through the end of the chapter. Because their qualifications are not just for the officers, they're actually for all of us. And that's our last point. And that is that elders and deacons serve as models for all of us to emulate. Remember, elders and deacons are operating down here at the level of the local church. There aren't all these levels of hierarchy. They're here for us to see. And the context in which Paul is presenting these qualifications is found in verse 14. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he's hoping to go visit them. So he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, here's what he wants them to know. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we could do a whole sermon just on these two verses, but the key thing to pick up here is he refers to the church as the household of God. We see that the paradigm for structuring the church is actually the family. And every family has those who lead. Every family has those who serve. Every family has certain behaviors that are expected. And so Paul is saying, I'm writing to you so you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is how I want things to Play out. This is how I want things to be conducted. It's instructions for that household, for members, and that's us. When we understand that and we can see that in context, well, then he's giving us these qualifications, and yes, they are for the overseer, elder, and for deacon, but surely they're not limited to officers alone because they apply to all of us. Take, for example, verse two. It talks about being hospitable. Is, hospi- is hospitality expected only of elders? That was expected of all Christians. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. First Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We can go through every one of these. We can see how they are all meant to, for example, verses 4 through 5, talks about caring and nurturing. Surely we're all to care and to nurture for one another. Verse 7 says that we're to be outward looking, engaging the community around us. We're all to do that. The bottom line is that these attributes are to characterize the entire household of God. You notice that they are attributes. They're qualifications. It's not a job description of what an elder and deacon does. That's covered elsewhere. It's characteristics. And that's meant for all of us as we emulate Christ. But what the officers do is that they emulate Christ for us so that we can have a tangible models that we can emulate, that we can see these qualities are to be preeminent in officers. They're supposed to excel in them. That's why they qualify as officers. But then they model that for all of us to follow. As Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 11 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, this is in the end, ultimately, something that shows us as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus has laid out these two offices for us of elder and deacon to continue his ministry of word and deed. Jesus is that chief shepherd. And he's called the elders to be that shepherd, uh, those under shepherds for us. And he is the chief deacon, the chief servant, and he's called the deacons to continue that ministry of mercy. They're doing it for our good to build us up in Christ. But ultimately, ultimately, the things that we see laid out for them apply to all of us. We're the ones who are to grow up in Christ and to become all these things. They reflect Christ to us, but we are to continue to build on that and to seek these qualities for our church. So together, we can all grow up, as we read in that Ephesians 4 passage, to full maturity in Christ. That's the wonder of this passage. And so in just a moment here, we're going to be calling these men up. And usually we have one guy who's up for elder, one guy who's up for deacon. This time we have one of each. So we get to see them both. It's really an exciting moment. And I'm looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to it. And I hope you will see it as not just the ordination of these men but that you will see Christ at work in his church. It is his promise to care for you, to provide for you and to love you that you see being fulfilled even here as we ordain these men. Let's pray and ask the Lord would um, prosper us as a church, a church that could preserve and proclaim and pass on the truth of Christ, even through its members. Let's pray.